Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Osiris. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. Jacqueline Holland is the author of the new book, The God of Endings, an incredible time-hopping novel about eternal life. What would you do with it? It's fantastic. Um, I gush about it enough during the thing. I won't, during the interview, I won't do it during the introduction. But I, I, I read it. I loved it. I think it's great. I think Jacqueline has such a promising career ahead of her. And this is just the beginning. The God of Endings is her first novel. She got an MFA from the University of Kansas and has had short stories published in a number of magazines. But this is her first novel. And I think there's a lot to come. And I think that her perspective um, from, you know, the the beginning of a very promising career is an incredibly valuable one. That said, she's also been working for years and years at her craft. We do get a little bit into the conversation surrounding artificial intelligence and its place in the world of creativity. It's not something I've gotten into a lot in these wheels off conversations, and it's a little (laughs) terrifying, frankly, but... You know, that's what that's what we that's what we artists right now are all talking about behind the scenes. When I run into other musicians and when I talk to my friends who are authors or even comedians or TV writers, it's uh, definitely fodder for the backstage conversation that never seems to end, that the conversation that is the uh, impetus and format for these wheels off podcasts that I've been doing now for all low these many years. Anyway, you guys are going to love this one with Jacqueline Holland. I'm really grateful that she took the time to sit down and join me from her home. And I highly recommend that you all read The God of Endings. Great book. So please welcome to Wheels Off, Jacqueline Holland. Welcome to Wheels Off, Jacqueline Holland. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? 
I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this um, because this has like a little bit of a different flavor from the things that I've been doing, um, talking about you know my book and stuff like this. I'm really excited to talk about process, and, like the art life and all that, all that drama. Um, for the edification of our listeners, from where are you logging in? I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, cool. Nice. I will not bring this up week- hockey. Oh, okay. This week it is beautiful. So yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time coming. Our winter winters are always brutal. This one has been no exception. So it like stopped snowing like a week ago. It's funny. I don't, I don't think people don't understand how beautiful St. Paul really is. I, my mom's roommate from college lived there. So when, when I was growing up, we would summer it in Brainerd at Gull Lake. And, but I would always go to St. Paul to visit her. And, and one of my best friends, her son, Tom still lives there. And it's so beautiful there. It is. Yeah. I, when I take my kids to school, we come across what's called the high bridge and it just looks out over all of downtown St. Paul and there's the cathedral and there's the Capitol. And it looks like that scene at the beginning of Mary Poppins where you see London and it's all like twinkling and beautiful and the dusk light it is it's really gorgeous yeah um congratulations by the way on the god of endings it is so great thank you um i you know i don't always get a chance to uh if i'm interviewing an author to read their book but i I devoured this and it was um is this your first novel yes it is yep Mm -hmm. were there any um abandoned projects before before this one Um, yeah, I suppose I, I never really got very far on any novels before this one. Wow. And, and you must have now been done with this one for a while. Yeah. It's, that's weird to think about that. I've haven't really touched it in a year, maybe even more, which is just like, that was my entire life for so long. (laughs) So it's hard to, I'm like forgetting things in the story. I, I actually don't know all the details. You might have to fill me in. Well, I mean, how could you not? There's a lot that goes on. There's there's, there's a lot. Uh, yeah. centuries and decades and so many characters. Um, But and it's not that you shouldn't be allowed to rest on your laurels having co- just completed this giant, beautiful thing. Um, What are you working on right now? And how does it light you up? Uh, I'm working on two books at the same time. Um, taking a page from the life of Dostoevsky, although he did it morning and night, which sounds divine. I am just like kind of alternating days, which is terrible. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, really, I'm working on a new novel, but I'm also putting some work into a sequel for that and kind of, yeah, it's not a smart way to go about things, but it's what I'm doing. So <laughs> it's funny. It did feel like this world was left in a, a, a state where you could revisit it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. because it's, it's an eternal life, you know, it's I about know. immortal and, and, ev- and the point of it, you know, the God of endings, it kind of has this conceit that every ending is a beginning and, um, and every beginning is the beginning of an ending. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, how do you even, tie that off with any kind of finality god your editor must love you (laughs) i think i love my editor and my editor loves me i think we have a pretty happy little relationship um we have a friend in common owen king who's been a guest on real self and um, 
he had read your book as well. And so while I was reading it, we, we were texting back and forth and I was able to point something out to him that somehow he had missed at no point. I, I don't think it's ruining because everything I've read about your book and all the interviews I've seen, there's the mild spoiler of there's, and you just mentioned eternal life. Mm-hmm. You never once used the word vampire. Well, technically that is not true. Oh, okay. Did um, I miss it? Was there one in there? There was one. It's in Russian. So oh. the word is <laughs> tricked Yeah. The word is Berdelak. Okay. And the grandfather says it at the beginning when he is taking her away. He says, ah, Berdelak. We have those in my country too. Nice. So, but that's it. Yep. That's all. Wow. That's great. It's because, well, for so many reasons, but what a sweet trick that must have been. At what point did you decide like, you know what? I'm not going to say it. I I actually didn't. Um, People ask that a lot and it it wasn't, uh, I guess, like if there had been a moment where it felt like it was helpful or necessary, uh-huh. I would have done it, but okay. there really wasn't, you know, it, it never felt like it needed to be said. And then it was cool for it to not be said, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I, and ultimately I really do like that. Um, but you know, I just do what I feel like the story requires. Oh my God. That's to me, it's funny. All these 180 interviews I've done, what you just said is a thing that echoes through all of them. If you like, if you try to calculate what you think people want or your editor would want or what the market it's when you do the thing you just said, if you listen to what the story wants, Oh my God, that's so great. Well done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you. Um, so did, did you always know it was going to be writing did you always know you'd be a novelist and and was there a an epiphany moment well first i was going to be the next whitney houston i have to tell you um <laughs> when i was a kid i was a singer and that was my great passion and i had a large adoring family and so i was like performing at every single opportunity for my family and Um, It is how I became the megalomaniac that I am today. Uh, And then eventually, I mean, I I also always loved reading. And I think like a lot of people, I've I've heard a lot of writers say this, and I definitely felt this before I'd heard them say that, that I didn't know people made books. They were like real people. I just, they were these beautiful treasures that somehow were here, but I, I didn't imagine that there was a person hunched at a desk, spending their life that way, bringing these things into the world. So I was grateful for them, but I didn't really imagine that I could be one for quite a long time. Um, And I mean, even, (laughs) even people who pursue writing, I think that that sort of feeling of this can't really happen. I can't really do this can really cling pretty late into even the endeavor. I mean, I think there are a lot of people in MFA programs who are like, maybe I could get a story published. Maybe I could, you know, like this, that, but can you really do it? Can it really be done? Um, So yeah, but it was in, it was in fifth grade that I really discovered my love for writing. Um, Not necessarily the ambition to be a writer, but uh, that's when we started having writing workshop one hour a week and it was the hour of the week that i lived for i had a little like we all had a little manila folder 
and we spent an hour writing our stories and then we tucked it into this folder, put it away for the week. And that was just like everything to me. And I finished a story. It was a Goosebumps kind of uh, homage <laughs> to, to a Goosebumps story. And I got to read it to the class and my classmates were, you know, I at least remember them as being impressed by it. I don't know if they were or not, but I got this like pop of attention and and I was recognized as being good at this and, and I loved it. Um, it was so pleasurable to me. And so that was when I was like, okay, this is it. This is all I want to do. And then in sixth grade, it was a, a Fear Street homage <laughs> that I got <laughs> my sixth grade class. And yeah, that's been it ever since. And you stuck with it through um, undergrad and an MFA. Um, you know, I tried to get away and I didn't really believe that it was something I could like, I still didn't have that idea of like, I'm going to be a writer. So I loved it and I, it was always there, but I didn't, I tried other things. Um, I went into college, a history major, which is hilarious. I mean, I love history. I do, but I had, I quickly discovered I had very little to offer the field of history and I had a lot more to offer in my English classes. Um, so I, you know, at times I thought I might be a literary critic. Um, I got very sucked into, you know, writing about Kate Chopin and the awakening and the Darwinist influences, you know, stuff like that. Um, but the writing just always came back and it, it was the thing that just flowed and it was the thing that made me happy and, um, that I just had to do, you know, it just kept, kept coming out. So it's funny, the history makes sense to me though having read your work because it's not historical fiction per se but i feel like you make moments come alive in history which is from on a personal level like a, a little microscopic vision of what it must have been like to be on the outskirts of of world war ii for instance yeah yeah i mean i i would contend it writing it it felt like historical fiction because yeah i, <laughs> I had to um consider all the historical knowledge that my readers and other people might have coming into it about World War II, which is incredibly difficult to write about. Um, the dog behind I you is adorable and distracting. I know. Poor, poor Ziggy has a cone because he's scratched a, a hot spot, an allergy hot spot. He's, he, he's a really good boy. Okay, lay down, Ziggy. He likes to hang out with me in the, my office. That's awesome. Um, um, yeah. The beginning of the book starts in with the New England Vampire Panic, which is a very yes. historical incident. And so I got to do a ton of research on that. So, um, yeah, there's a there's a good amount of history and a good amount of history legwork that I had to do going into this book. It's it's great. And it feels like whatever, now now I'm just brainstorming with you about your future books in the series. <laughs> but it does feel like there would be room throughout for that kind of time hopping. Oh, Even yeah. like in future books as well. So it comes up a lot in these conversations, especially with authors, but also even with musicians, the idea of um, homage that you mentioned, like Michael Chabon described his first attempts at writing fiction, um, writing Sherlock Holmes, basically fan fiction or whatever. Awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and it comes up a lot. I know in my, in my own experience, my first, however many songs were like David Bowie, 1966, like they, I sang with a British accent. It's, it's embarrassing stuff, but we have to get through it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I am a huge advocate for mimesis as a 
as a, a strategy for learning and growing in any art. And I was taught in that way in my undergraduate writing program. And it was so fun. I One of my senior projects was to write something combining the, the style or the inspiration from two di different authors. And I did Hemingway and uh, Maxine Hong Kingston. And it was so fun. Um, I mean, what it what it does for you, making art is so overwhelming. Like just conjure something out of the ether. Yeah. Take nothing and turn it into something. That's terrifying, um, it, especially for young people who are unskilled and unpracticed at it. And so I think that it really kind of performs almost like almost like a sonnet or like a poetic form where, okay, you don't have to just make a beautiful poem with any friggin' rhyme scheme and any friggin' words you can think of. No, instead, just make a line and then make another one that rhymes with that line. You know, it just, it eliminates some of the infinite variables to creating a work of art. And when some of those when a huge amount of those variables are eliminated, then you can concentrate all of your energy, your creative energy, your skill at the, the choices that remain. And I just, I don't know. I, I think that it's incredibly helpful and I wish that it was used more. It is a little bit out of favor um, in like pedagogic styles, which I think is super unfortunate and, because it is, it is how everyone starts. And there's also um kind of a taboo against ripping someone off or like oh that's that's just like this or whatever even i think if if your kid comes to you with something and you recognize an influence very clearly like they're imitating something very clearly that there's nothing wrong with that that's fantastic you know like that should be so encouraged because eventually those training wheels come off and then you can make your own thing. I mean, not that anything is exists in isolation. Everything we write comes from the mulch of all the books we've read and all the things that we've loved. Um, but I think that more people should intentionally begin with mimesis, with imitating the things that they love. But it's currently more discouraged. It's right now for is it for reasons of like fear of uh, plagiarism kind of thing or no it's not that it's that we uh we are romantics in sort of the classical literary sense in that we do not tend to um, appreciate the more classical the more disciplined approaches to learning art instead we just want to everybody should just like rip their hearts out and we should watch them like pulse in our hands. And, and you don't need skill. You don't need influences. You don't need critics. You know, it's just like your guts. And I get it. Um, those hardened forms that develop over time with classical practices or disciplines, you can lose some emotion or some vitality, but um, I just think we're, we are handicapping ourselves when we don't value those stepping stones and those disciplines and those practices that increase our skill so that we can really describe the beating heart well once we are able to rip it out and and you know show it to our our audience or our reader 
because as you said, it's terrifying. Sitting down is scary. It's, so this is one thing I wonder, and one of my favorite parts of these conversations is when when you come up against the voices in your head that tell you that you're no good or 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 whatever, you know, these these sort of internally. Did you? Where did you? <laughs> how, did, how did you know? <laughs> because even the people I would never expect, even the ones that are the most you know yeah. what a co competent seeming award winning cool as the cucumber like we all have them and and it's it's shocking to me you know my very first uh interview for these years ago 3 years ago was Roseanne Cash and she described uh success syndrome um imposter syndrome like all these things that i would never have guessed and so i'm assuming that there must be some of those voices in your life in your head when you come up against those, what have you figured out as um as a trick to get past them? That is a great question. Um and I I do think it's really interesting to listen to those voices and see what they say and be like, what's that about? Um, because I I do think that performance is i mean it's just all about where we get our value as a human whether it's an external source of value or an internal source of value or what um and anything you do well actually becomes a threat you know i i have a small amount of fear of some of my earlier stories that are really good i you know at first when i wrote them i was like oh my gosh, I, this is so good. I'm so proud of this. Like, this is me. And I got it on a page. But now those things have become strangers. They've moved into the past. They've become their own thing apart from me. And now just like any other great story or book, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm a little scared. Like, I don't know if I can do that again. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can top that, you know? And, and so it's, it's just funny to me that there's no, sometimes we think about like, feeling competition with other writers or whatever, but the syndrome is so acute that it can even turn you against yourself and your own works. Like nothing is safe. It's just a sickness. It's not, it, there's, there's just nothing true or, or good about it. Um, and I, and, and I think like the instant you're done doing something wonderful, you will immediately feel panic and terror that you, that that was your last wonderful thing, that you will never do anything wonderful again, that it's all downhill from here. Um, and not only downhill, but like a public humiliation of, no, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I do. Awful. Um, but I had, I had a realization just recently where I really came to the fact that, you know, I, for me, believe that this is my calling as a human being. This is what I'm on earth to do there. Among other things, I'm a parent, I'm a wife, um, I'm an artist in a broader sense, but I was made to write, to tell stories, to add whatever I can to the balance of beauty in this world. And I am not called necessarily to do it well or the best. I'm just called to do it. And so even if the quality of my work declines shamefully, even if I write a novel that's just a total stinker, if I have faithfully pursued my calling, that's enough. 
that's it. That's all I got to do. It's like the idea of unconditional love. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like you're you're giving something beautiful to the universe because you love the universe and it doesn't it, it's not contingent on quality. The universe isn't going to turn its nose up at you. And I and I think it's about like to me there's a kind of faithfulness in it and and it is about love. Um you know, I I like to think of art as for me, at least personally, these sort of love letters that I'm writing to the world. And if they are expressing my love truly, it doesn't matter what the world says back to me. It doesn't matter if it, if they're beautiful and eloquent. It doesn't even matter if the love is reciprocated. They are a beautiful and valuable thing in, in and of themselves if the love is genuine, if I'm expressing truthfully my love. And yeah, it's nice to have your love returned, but but that's secondary matter. Um, so so that there's just beauty right there for me. And yeah. I try to be try to remain like satisfied. Like that's enough. God, I think this is wildly useful. I just I really I hope I feel I feel like the people that listen to this are people that have artistic aspirations or dreams or or live artistic lives or all of the above. And I I know that what you just said is and even just for me is incredibly useful because we all reach a point where we're trying to feed our family or you know there all the things that attach themselves barnacle like to our art and to strip them away and just remember what you said that you were you were born to do this to write these love letters to the universe and everything else is disconnected in in a sense oh that's so good Oh my God, that's so good. I reached such a, um, you know, I've been writing songs since I was 15 and I'm, and I'm old and I, it still happens. And just the other day I, I, and I, God, I don't even want to bring up the subject, but I hit such a dark place the other day working on this song and, and thinking how bad it was. Oh, these are the worst lyrics. What if it's all over? You know, everything good is in my past. And so, because, yeah. <laughs> Because I'd been hearing everybody talking about chat GPT. It just popped into my head. Huh? I'm stuck on this song. So I've downloaded an app and I put in my prompt and I said in the style of Rhett Miller of old and it wrote me. Oh, you did it? I oh did it. Oh my gosh. I'm so fascinated. This is. It, yeah, it was. Yeah. Horrible. It, it was. It, it was. It was bad. I mean, it was categorically bad, but it was also terrifying to the point where I immediately uh, deleted the app, scrubbed everything, every bit of evidence from my phone. It only existed on my phone for about 30 seconds, but it'll never be completely scraped out of my heart. It was bad. Yeah, and I I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of glad you had that experience looking out into the dark side. And I, I, I thought I actually wondered, like, am I going to go there during this conversation and talk about chat GBT? Because I have materials due. Um, to my editor, which deadlines is an interesting thing to think about and talk about. Um, and the materials that I have do, you know, I I was going, so the book that I'm writing is, I'm taking a shift into science fiction. Nice. And so I was doing some online rabbit holing about AI, about chat GPT, stuff like that. And I came across all these like very advertisement sounding things about chat GPT saying, 
always wanted to write that novel now you can always need you know a plot synopsis now you can just plug in your ideas and the voice of the author you want to sound like and chat gbt will do the rest for you and it was one of those get behind me satan moments where it was like it's, it's got a bunch of your voice in it you can do yeah. it oh my god <laughs> but it, it was it was like this gleaming apple of like hanging their artistic apple of just it'd be so easy what i what i've been struggling to do for months it could do in five minutes but could it you know first could of it? all no way and, and what and what would i be what would i be at that point <laughs> you know it what would that transform me as an artist into and these are open questions you know i yeah. i don't think it's simple by no. any means but um to me, it was really, really horrifying. It's more horrifying because I, you know, as a as a quasi history of student, I I'm very much an individualist, but I also am always aware of sort of these larger waves of history. And so, while I came across that and said, "Like, fuck no, get away from me," yeah, I have to recognize this is a wave and that I am going to be the exception. You are going to be the exception in turning away from what's easy, what um, purports to give you your deepest desire so, so easily. Um, it More people are going to take it than pass it up. And it's going to change art. It's going to change industry. It's going to change the occupation of being an artist. And that is what concerns me most of all because obviously chat gpt is far less expensive than a human writer who has to support a family and needs this that and the other chat gpt does not go on expensive book tours um things like that it's just it's the more economical model and i do think that it's going to displace a lot of writers and I think it's going to elevate some um, some input, uh, some people who think of art as as putting in input. Um, and that I don't know. That makes me nervous about what the landscape is going to be, and and it's going to happen fast. I wonder. I wonder what then artists will do. I wonder what we will do. I wonder if there will be some impulse to, I mean, not that we need to be driven by outside forces, but I wonder if there will be some impulse for us to make the things that we create wilder and less predictable and something that's obviously could never be created, or if, if there is even something that could never be created by ChatGPT. Well, it's funny that you say that because, so there's always the countervailing artistic impulse, which is a relief and lovely However, it's always small in proportion to the, the larger movement, I think. But, but also the thing about this stuff is that it actually creates fairly wild stuff. You can, you can create, like, I mean, computers are great at nonsense. They're actually yeah. really good at that. And I think I've actually noticed, I think a lot of artists are, are ending up imitating this computer art that is just that sort of kitchen sink, like, uh, you know, the, the 
meta the multiverse like let's just throw everything in there let's make this wilder less predictable we all want to do that and i i wonder where we are getting that impulse i wonder if we are not finding ourselves sort of secretly in competition with some of the storytelling that computers are making possible or that computers are generating you know i've seen a lot of images ai generated art that when you can put in vermeer and muppets and you know i don't know what van gogh you're gonna get some wild stuff that's gonna be a weird wild mashup and and i almost wonder if we might not go in the opposite direction, if we might not become a bit more Henry James-esque, because I don't think that that's something, I, well, it probably will be able to do that too, but but the thing that ChatGPT cannot do at this moment is meaning. Yeah. It cannot make stories that resonate strongly with emotion. It doesn't really understand emotion well. It can, it has some coding, like, you know, this facial expression equals this, but it can't dance in the realm of the heart. It can't do that. And it can't tell you what life is for. It can't tell you why to make art. So maybe artists are going to have to become meaning makers to be distinctive as human artists, which I'm okay with. Um, it may just become a higher bar that we have to jump. And that's such a great point because it's built so slowly, right? You build a character, you build a story, you make you care about them, the reader care about them or the listener or whatever. And then eventually way down the road, when something happens to them, meaningful, you experience it with them. And that's, so that's, that's what we can do at the moment. They can't be replicated. Yeah, but but even I mean to take it further down the road, I I wonder if it won't come to sort of that place that we were already talking about where we cease to see the goal of our art as being best or being yeah. most novel or most spectacular and instead return to, am I telling the truth as I conceive of it? Am I expressing my love or my pain or my, or both? You know, like, am I giving, am I giving my best? And I can't compete with these machines. I can't compete in the industry, but I just have to do it nonetheless. So here it is. And I think that we'll be able to detect that authenticity. 100%. It's funny because it's, in a way, music is ahead of the curve on this because for the last 20 years, music has been moving into a Pro Tools world where everything can be perfected and and and, and is being perfected. And, and so everything that you hear that's big, glossy pop music may as well be created by, although the, the music that AI creates at the moment is still kind of silly, but, but, but it's also perfected and, and, you know, a line, they call it lined up on Pro Tools where everything's on the beat perfectly and all of the pitches are perfect. But 
so the thing that I wind up loving and so many um, music listeners and, and you see it going with with a lot of what my teenage kids are listening to is really shoddy indie rock sounding like messed up. Yeah. Rock one. Rock. Yeah. Or like one take and the pitches are crazy and the vocals are crazy and everything's all over the place. And that's so. Yeah. So maybe that's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I am totally with you. I think perfection grows stale and I love some good garage rock where like, what note did you just sing? (laughs) It's kind of, it's between these two, but it was right. You know, it was the right off note or whatever. Um, And just God help us if chat GPT learns to do that too. I know (laughs) the bummer is, that you know like in in the god of endings your writing is so deft and i mean it's it's so it's not garage rock you know it's got a lot of feeling it's got a lot of heart but it's it's so well written that if that's the thing that becomes devalued because a computer can write but it also has a lot of heart and that's what they can't do. Okay. Oh my God. We can't, we can't do this. It's why this is the first time I think I've really addressed live this today. Today we are alive and the machines have not taken over. We are going to enjoy this day. <laughs> Will we just become like the necessary, um, what's it called? Organic matter. Yes. Yes. Oh so no. These people. <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, I love this. I feel like there's such useful stuff in here, and um, I really am grateful for your perspective and the thoughtfulness with which you approach your work. Uh, I wonder if you would mind trying to distill it into maybe a nugget of wisdom if you were to run into a 21-year-old version of yourself in today's world. What advice might you give yourself? Um, that's such a good question. I think what I find myself telling young writers is to take themselves seriously. Even don't expect anyone else to no one else else will. Um, people are always going to hear that you're a writer and they're going to get a really sweet expression on their face. And they're going to like sort of try to pet you or something like, Oh, that's so great. Have you, have you ever published anything? That's always the next question. Um, and it is tough to endure. Uh, and so I meet a lot of, I don't really love the word aspiring writers because it sounds again, super condescending, but, writers uh who are who are doing the work and they are have not reached where they want to be yet and so many of them are embarrassed to say they're writers so many of them just kind of like shrug it off like uh uh, you know like but here's what i do to pay the bills and i just tell many of them like get a dose of hubris take yourself seriously and you can play, you know, modest and mild when you encounter people like that. But when you are in private, if you do not believe that you can do this or that come hell or high water, you're going to try, it will beat you. This writing books, at least for me, is extraordinarily difficult. Like 
so difficult. Um, epic level quest difficult. And if you do not believe in yourself, you will not make it. And if you don't believe in what you're doing, and if you don't love what you're doing, you don't have to like it all the time. It can be very unlikable, but you have to want it. So, and, and I think like anything else, you'll figure it out. But that you got to get right. How long did God of Endings take you? Uh, I started it at one point and I sold it six years later. God, see? Well yeah. done. Bravo. That's so great. <laughs> it, was, it was a process and and it was never safe. It was never safe to be spending all my time and energy on a novel, you know. But it was what we bet on, my family, we bet on it. And so we just had to do it. Uh, and I do, I feel like this has come up a few times recently, and it's such a useful thing, the idea of um, just self-belief, even if it seems unrealistic. Or, or I remember there's a quote that John Hamm had years ago, um, coming from St. Louis and from a, sort of a weird family background. And he said, why not me? If not me, whom? And that's something I never had. I always thought everybody else knows something I do not know. But I love the way you describe it. I love that quote from John Hamm. I just feel like, yeah, kids should know. There's no secret that these other people know. They don't have some chromosome or some part of their brain that you don't have access to. Well done. Well said. Yeah, that doesn't mean believing in yourself as being like the most talented, the most <laughs> able, or like the one who will win the American Idol. It means I want it. I yeah. know that I want it and I know I'm willing to do the work. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. Boy, that's the hard truth that comes up when I, whenever I speak to really anybody in any field, but writers especially, because it's so many hours of solitary, lonely, parked on a, you know, in front of a desk. Yeah. yeah. Do the work, put in the hours. I've dreamed of it myself. I well, I admire I admire what you're doing and and yet you still, you know, you're waking up with your kids every morning and you're you're able to make it work. So, well done. Congratulations. Worth it, you know. It's the the artist life. It it doesn't have a lot of spoils, but it is its own reward. It's so worth it. It's worth it for my kids to see their parents, my husband an artist as well, to see their parents working at what they love and yeah. pursuing and that's, I mean, you know, we, whatever we're doing, we're modeling behavior for our kids, whether mm -hmm. it's good or bad. And and that's great to see two people who are writing love letters to the world on a daily basis. Yeah. That's so great. Well, <laughs> congratulations on the God of Endings. I mean, the, I don't see a world in which this doesn't become a major motion picture or a 10-part series. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's so great. And I just, I can't wait to see what you do next. And I'm really grateful that you spent the time and shared your wisdom with me. Thank you. Thank you. This has been so cool. I've loved it. Woo! All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all.
Osiris. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.